Every single year, millions of Americans spend billions of dollars to travel around the world, to do things like sit on the beach and stare out at the vastness of the ocean, to climb mountains and gaze upon the landscape below, to see buildings that are thousands of years old and unlike anything they've ever seen before, to seek out that which they perceive is beautiful. Sorry, is this, is that better? But why exactly do we do that? What makes us as humans seek after beauty? Why do we place such a high value on something that we perceive is beautiful? And even more so, when we say beauty, what exactly are we referring to? You know, it's easy to recognize it when we see it, but how do we define it? You know, these are questions that secular philosophers have debated for centuries and still have no clear answer to. And I don't know how much you have thought about questions like those before, but they're actually questions that are crucial to Christianity. Is beauty simply in the eye of the beholder? Or is there such a thing as objective and absolute beauty? Is beauty's purpose simply found in the pleasure that it gives the one perceiving it? Or was it intended for something greater? And for all the beauty that surrounds us, why is it that our desire for beauty is never really satisfied? No matter how beautiful the sunset, no matter how extravagant the painting, no matter how compelling the song, we never really walk away from it saying, that was it. I no longer seek after beauty. Why is that exactly? Well, C.S. Lewis answers that question this way. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. A men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire with which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove this universe is a fraud. Probably earthly desires were never meant to satisfy it but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So Lewis argues that for all the beauty in this world, all the beauty that constantly surrounds us in our lives, it was never really meant to satisfy our desire for beauty, but, at, but to actually point us towards what can satisfy that desire. The study of beauty is the study of God. In fact, I would say it's impossible to study God without studying beauty. It's impossible to study beauty without studying God. The two are inseparable. You know, the Bible teaches us that beauty is that which reflects God, and God's very nature is that of beauty. God's beauty is his essential character. It's his greatness, his loveliness, his power, his wisdom, his holiness. And it's on display all around us. God is both the source of all things beautiful, and he's the very standard to which all beauty is measured. You know, there's this word that we often use when talking about God's beauty called ineffable. 
And the dictionary definition of that word is incapable of being expressed in words. God's beauty in every way is beyond our comprehension. However, it's for that very reason that we are so drawn towards it. Why it it stirs up in us the desire to see it more and more. And what I want to do with our time this morning is I want to look at the word of God and see what it teaches us about how the people of God should be relating to the beauty of God. And the first place I want to see God's beauty is in the created world all around us. The really unique thing about God's beauty in creation is that you don't actually have to know God to see it, right? Romans 1.20 says it this way. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So from the very beginning of creation, mankind has been able to look at the created world around us and see reflections of who God is. And Paul says that because of that, there's not a single person that will be able to stand before God and say, I had no idea that you existed. This is what we call natural revelation, and it's experienced by all humanity. Psalm 19 echoes these same truths this way, when it says the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. I love the imagery that David uses here in verses three and four. It says that creation uses no words, but it has this powerful voice that goes to the very ends of this world. And while David is specifically referencing the heavens and the skies, certainly we can apply the same principle to every bit of our created world. I would argue that there's nowhere in this world that you can go that you can't see the beauty of God. You know, John, John Calvin even goes further and he says this. He says, there is not an atom of the universe in which you cannot see some brilliant sparks, at least, of his glory. You know, throughout scripture, we also see God use the beauty of his creation to reassure his people of his promises. And my favorite example of this is found in the early chapters of Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. And in this chapter, we see God calling Abraham into covenant with him. And he makes him this great promise concerning the future generations of his offspring. Now, the only problem is, at this point... Abraham doesn't have any kids, and he's getting pretty old. And for Abraham, it must have been pretty difficult for him to understand how God was going to fulfill this promise. But this is what it says in Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. 
Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So when Abraham needed to be reassured of who God was, what he was capable of, God takes him outside and he shows him his beauty revealed in the vastness of the night sky. Now certainly God's primary intention was to show him the truly uncountable amount of stars and tell him that that's what his future generations would be like. But at the same time, God intentionally ties together his covenant promise and his revealed glory in creation. And that's all Abraham needed. No more questions, no more doubts. Abraham believed. You know, before my wife and I got married, I lived and served in El Paso, Texas for two years. And I moved to El Paso shortly after graduating from Ferris State University with my degree in law enforcement. And while there, I attended the police academy. I was fully certified to be a police officer in Michigan. And that was my dream job. That's what I wanted to do my whole life. However, through a series of events, a lot of prayer, wise counsel, I became convicted that my plan for my life was very different than God's plan. And I made the decision to no longer pursue a career in law enforcement, but rather start seminary classes and move to El Paso to serve in a small local church plant there. And while I had a lot of peace about my decision, there was still so much uncertainty and questions about what my future was going to look like. And I can remember while I was driving from Michigan to El Paso, I was about three or four hours away from getting there. And we were driving through the West Texas desert in the middle of the night. Absolutely nobody else around. And my friend that I'm moving there with tells me to pull over for a minute. So we get out of the car, we turn off the lights, and the way that that sky lit up in the middle of the desert is indescribable. It's unlike anything I'd ever experienced before in my life. And I was in awe. And any feelings of uncertainty or questions about what my future was going to look like was replaced by this deep reassurance of who God is. It was the beauty of God in creation that brought me back to the truth of God in his word and reminded me of his promises. That is the purpose of beauty in creation, to draw us back to the creator, to give us little glimpses of beauty and greatness so that we might hunger for it more and more. Now, before we move on from God's beauty and creation, I do want to make one thing very, very clear. For as absolutely stunning as God's beauty and creation is, it pales in comparison to God's full beauty. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He says, The beauty of trees, plants, and flowers with which God has bespangled the face of the earth is delightful. The beautiful frame of the body of man, especially in its perfection, is astounding. The beauty of the moon and stars is wonderful. The beauty of the highest heavens is transcendent. The excellency of angels and saints and light is very glorious. But it is all deformity and darkness in comparison to the brighter glories and beauties of the creator of all. For behold, even the moon, and it shineth not. That is, think of the excellency of God, and the moon will not seem to shine to you. God's excellency so much outshines it. And the stars are not pure in his sight. And so we all know at that great day when God appears, the sun shall be turned into darkness, shall hide its face as if he were ashamed to see himself so much outshined. And the very angels hide their faces before him. The highest heavens are not clean in his sight. What beautiful imagery 
that when faced with the full beauty of God, the sun itself will be ashamed at how outshined it is. The wonderful beauty of creation pales in comparison to that of its maker. For those of us who know God, our rightful response is to see his beauty in creation, to be filled with the awe and the wonder that it inspires, and return it back to him in worship. I want to transition from focusing on beauty in creation to beauty in Christ. And with that, we move from a picture of beauty to the very person of beauty. You know, I've never been to the Grand Canyon before, but every single person I know that has been there says a picture can never do it justice. It's something you must experience in person to truly understand. Before I ever met my wife, we were set up on a blind double date. So the first image I ever saw of her was a picture on Facebook. And while that picture gave me some reference to what she looked like, it was completely inadequate in describing the type of beauty I experienced when I first met her. And in a much larger, more magnificent way, the beauty of God seen in the created world doesn't even compare to the beauty seen through Christ. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2.9. He says, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. I think we struggle to grasp the full significance of that verse. The fullness of God's character means his attributes, his perfection, his beauty. And there's so much that we can say about the beauty of God seen through Christ. But to gain a better understanding of how we should respond and relate to it, I want to look at an interaction that Jesus has with this woman just days before his crucifixion. Matthew, Mark, and John all give an account of this interaction, but I want to look primarily at Matthew's account found in Matthew 26. So turn there in your Bibles. And in this passage, we see what happens when somebody sees and responds to the beauty of Christ. Matthew 26, starting in verse 6, says this. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price in the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What a beautiful story. But who was this woman and what led her to do this incredible act? You know, ironically, Matthew says that because of what she does here, it will serve as a memory to her. But Matthew doesn't tell us who she is. But John's account of the same incident identifies this woman as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And it was just one chapter earlier in John's gospel, before this scene takes place, that Jesus receives news that Lazarus was sick. And it says that Jesus loved Mary and Lazarus and their sister Martha. However, after receiving the news of the sickness, Jesus waits two more days before coming to Lazarus. 
And by the time Jesus gets there, he's already been dead for four days. And while Martha runs out to see Jesus, Mary stays home, likely still struggling with the intense grief of losing her loved brother. But then Jesus specifically asks for Mary. And when Mary hears this, she runs to Jesus and falls down at his feet, confessing that she knows if Jesus had just been there, he could have stopped her brother from dying. And it was in that intense situation, surrounded by the ones he loved mourning, that Jesus wept. Jesus then goes to the place where Lazarus' body lay, and he asks for the stone to be removed. And Martha responds by saying that this body is likely already rotting away. And Jesus responds with this really powerful question. He says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Take a second and reflect on the powerful implications of that verse. Jesus then proceeds to do the seemingly impossible, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And John doesn't give us any more insight to the response of Mary in this moment, but let us just imagine for a moment. This woman caught in this intense grief comes face to face with the beauty of Christ displayed in his power over death. Can we even begin to imagine the awe and the wonder that she must have been filled with? The power of Christ in a way that no one thought was even possible. And it's with that background, we look again at our account in Matthew. This woman who has just so clearly seen the beauty of Christ, takes this alabaster jar of perfume, worth maybe the equivalent of 30, 40, $50,000 today, and she pours it out on Jesus. Where did Mary even get something that valuable? Was, this, was it this family heirloom passed on through the generations? Did the family pull together their life savings? We don't know. But what we do know is that it shows us that in that moment, Mary realized that there is nothing too great, nothing too extravagant, nothing too expensive to pour out in service to King Jesus. In that moment, there could be no greater purpose for that expensive perfume than for the beauty of the aroma to anoint its very creator. This action shows us that Mary realized something that we too often forget that there is nothing in this world that comes close to compare to the value of the infinite worth of Christ. It wasn't practical, it wasn't pragmatic, but it was beautiful. Oh, that our lives might be poured out in such a way that an unbelieving world around us sees that and says, what a waste. But King Jesus says, how beautiful. But it appears that not everybody in that room shared the same view of the value of Christ. It says that the disciples saw this and they were indignant. They were angry. They accused Mary of not caring enough about the poor. John gives us a little more insight and he says that it was Judas who was the most outspoken of the disciples. But you know, certainly all of these disciples, Judas included, had this front row seat throughout Jesus' ministry to see the beauty of Christ. So why could they not see what Mary saw. Judas was unable to see the beauty of Christ because he was too consumed with the external things of this world. John's, John's account tells us that Judas was the one in charge of the money bag. and He was a thief and he stole from the money bag. Judas wasn't concerned with the poor. He was just concerned with getting what he wanted. 
And the thing is, Judas didn't ultimately betray Jesus for the money. He betrayed Jesus because he realized that following Jesus wasn't going to get him what he really wanted. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the Messiah wouldn't have the type of external beauty that this world would be attracted to. And this shows us that seeing the beauty of Christ isn't just something done by human effort. Our eyes have to be opened for us. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's only when the Spirit opens our eyes that we can begin to see. When Jesus hears the accusations being thrown at Mary, he comes to her defense. He silences the accusers and he affirms that what she did was in fact beautiful. Jesus then goes on to say something that's a little bit puzzling. He says that when she poured out this perfume, she did it to prepare me for burial. And I have to wonder, did Mary have any idea the full significance of what she was doing here? You know, the text doesn't explicitly say, and most commentators, they don't think she did. And if she didn't, then this tells us that when we do beautiful things for the sake of Jesus, the impact and significance can go far beyond what we even understand in the moment. Just a few short days after this anointing, Jesus performed the most beautiful act the world had ever or would ever see. Jesus took the ugliness of the world and he offered up his incomparable beauty as a sacrifice. Isaiah says it this way, the will of the Lord, it was the will of the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer. Have you ever thought about the fact that it was on a tree that ugliness entered this world? When Adam and Eve took the fruit from the tree, every good and perfect thing that God had created for us was corrupted by sin and rebellion. But when Jesus took the cross fashioned from a similar tree, he made a way for fallen, sinful man to once again be made right with God. On a tree, ugliness entered this world. And on a tree, Jesus shows us the very definition of beauty. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. On the cross, Jesus, the very personification of beauty, identifies with ugly sinners so that we might share in his beauty. You know, contrary to the love and beauty of this world, God wasn't attracted to us because of any value or beauty we held. Rather, because of his great love, we can now be made beautiful. The writers of the book, Redeeming Technology, put it this way, the cross is the epicenter of beauty because that's where humanity finds love, life, and peace. There should be nobody in this world that values beauty more than the Christian who has had their eyes opened by the Spirit and has seen the beauty of the cross. We should be the first ones that see beauty all around us in creation, in art, in music, in writing, in poetry, and take the awe and the wonder that it creates in us and declare it as a testimony to who God is. But far too often, when we look at the way that we Christians respond to different forms of beauty in this world, that's not necessarily the case. I want to challenge the framework that we often view beauty in this world through. You know, I think we're tempted to view 
beauty in one of two ways. So one, see it as either explicitly Christian, that is created by a believer with religious themes, or secular, that is created by an unbeliever and couldn't possibly reflect the beauty of God. But I would argue that since God created all humanity in his image, even as broken image bearers, we can still, all humans, have the ability to create beauty that reflects our creator. And the people of God, the ones who know his character, should be the ones that can see those beautiful realities and proclaim their true significance. Think about the themes in a work like Les Mis. I won't try to butcher the French word for the miserables. But it's the story of incredible grace in redeeming that which we think is unredeemable. Think of the way that that echoes the truths of the gospel in powerful ways. You know, we also see an example of this in God's word. When King Solomon was building the temple for God, the very temple in which the presence of God would dwell, he created it with all sorts of beautiful colors and decorations and design. And King Solomon wanted this temple to be great and beautiful because the God he was creating it for was greater and more beautiful than any other God. So King Solomon actually requested from, ki from the king of Tyre, this pagan nation, somebody who had the necessary skills and abilities to oversee the building of the temple. And the king sent Solomon, this man named Huram Abi. And Second Chronicles describes him this way. He is trained to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood, and with purple and blue crimson yarn and fine linen. He is experienced in all kinds of engraving and can execute any design given to him. He will work with your skilled workers and with those of my Lord David, your father. So this man who came from this pagan, idol-worshiping nation was permitted to work on the very temple of God because Solomon realized what we oftentimes forget, that beauty is beauty regardless of who creates it. Now at the same time, there is something that we need to be cautious about when we're deciding which forms of art in this world to engage with. You know, there are certainly expressions of art that are nothing more than a perversion of God's truth that we should have nothing to do with. I'm not suggesting we engage with anything that might hinder our walk with Christ. You know, there are people in this world who might consider something like pornography to be art, to have some sort of beauty. But that is nothing more than a clear contradiction of God's good plan for human sexuality. There is so much beauty in sex, but not in that way. Have nothing to do with that kind of evil. You know, there's so much more we can say about how the church should be interacting with the beauty that's all around us. But it's an area where we as believers need to have wisdom and be discerning in. But as we grow in maturity and wisdom, we can better take all forms of beauty in this world and reflect them back to their true source. The world around us is filled with so much beauty, but you know it's not as beautiful as it was before ugliness entered, and it's not as beautiful as it will be when ugliness is forever removed. For those who have submitted their lives to King Jesus, a beauty beyond our comprehension awaits us in the future. Revelation 22 describes it this way. No longer will there be any curse. 
the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will, need, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. We can only begin to imagine the type of beauty that we will see and experience when we once again live and dwell with our creator the way he always intended us to. It's a type of beauty that leaves us fully satisfied, wanting nothing more, and it never ends. J.I. Packer says it like this, hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to end, but it invariably does. The hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. There can be no better news than this. Nobody in this world should value beauty more than the Christian who experiences its awe and its wonder and is led back into worship of the one true God. But the key is we have to let that awe and wonder lead us back to worship. Because if we don't, then we'll fall into the same fatal mistake as the rest of the unbelieving world and we'll worship the creation and not the creator. You know, one of the greatest tragedies would be for us as followers of Jesus to buy into the lie that beauty is somehow unimportant or unnecessary to our faith. It was during the equippers class that Jeremy Rourke and I co-lead together technology in light of the gospel that I was convicted of my own view of beauty. And in that book, Redeeming Technology, the authors challenge us to think about all the technology and the digital media that surrounds us every day and how that has made us blind to true beauty. Think about the never-ending stream of videos and pictures and content that has caused us to become desensitized to where we should really be looking to see beauty. What we need to do is step back and learn how to see again. You know, it's impossible to do a full theology of beauty in one sermon. But I do pray that as we've looked at the word of God this morning, as we've seen glimpses of his beauty, as you've tasted the beauty of God, I pray that you would hunger for it more and more. Steve DeWitt in his book, Eyes Wide Open, Enjoying God in Everything, which I highly recommend to anybody to continue studying this topic of beauty, he sums up much of what we've talked about this morning this way. He says, like a breadcrumb trail, earthly beauty chaperones us on a path to see the beauty of Christ. For his beauty to lead to wonder, and for wonder to lead us to a life of worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your goodness and your kindness, you've allowed us to see glimpses of your beauty. God, remind us that the glimpses that we see are a mere fraction of your full beauty. God, fill us with the awe and wonder that your beauty inspires and lead us into a life of worship. God, we pray that as your people, we would be the ones to declare what true beauty is, what its true significance is, and who the true source of all beauty is. We love you and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.